0: I Read Comics, Episode 7. It's another comics podcast, and the big difference is I'm doing it, and I'm a girl. That's right, a girl that reads comics. My name is Lena Taylor, and I read comics. Hey, everyone. So, we're back with another show, and I wanted to start things off by saying that the last part of the show is. Uh, ...special because I have a special guest, my partner in crime from the Star Trek podcast that I do, the Look at His Butt podcast, because it was an intersection of two things that I love, which is comics and Star Trek. So that'll be at the end, and I've got a couple things to get through first. The first thing I wanted to say is, uh, of course, to thank everybody for all your feedback and emails because people have been so good in giving feedback to me. I really appreciate it. And one email in particular came from a guy named Corey Strode who was commenting on my last discussion about Sticky and Eros Comics. And I had said that they were selling a lot of comic books, which is my assumption because they're sex and things that are concerned with sex often sell more than anything else. And Corey says that by tracking comic sales from his website, he doesn't think that they're selling that many. And he said uh, either they sell really well through the website or they have massive sales through other distributors. So I wanted to get to the bottom of this, and I emailed my contact at Fantagraphics, who told me that, in fact, they do a lot of their sales for Eros via the website. What a surprise that people don't actually want to buy these in comic book stores. But he also confirmed something that Corey had said, which is that the sales of Eros are down a lot from about 10 years ago when the Eros line was the majority of the sales for Fantagraphics. And I think um, now it's down to about 30%. So it's 70% Fantagraphics and 30% Eros. Uh, it's still a lot of comic books, and sounds sells a fair amount of stuff. Now, one of the other reasons I think that Fantagraphics is selling more of the non-porn is because they've acquired rights to some classic comics that they've done an amazing job of, of selling, um, packaging and selling. The Peanuts stuff, for one thing, and those are really nice collections, and the Crazy Cat stuff. So they've done a, a stellar job of reclaiming some of the older comics that were really hard to get hold of, putting them in a nice format and selling them to people who want to have them in a form that they can easily reference and pick up and look at without worrying about you know, damaging something old and valuable. So, I think that they're going to continue in that vein to sell a lot of classic comics. Um, I'm curious to see what happens with the Eros line, how it goes. On a similar note, let's get the gay porn stuff out of the way, right up front. As far as Sticky goes, I had mentioned that they were going to, uh, Eros was going to stop after Sticky number three. And that's true, um, but it looks like Sticky may continue in some other way. Uh, Ginger, my Uh, editor over at the Lincoln Heights Literary Society, who generously sponsors this show, just like on NPR, um, has been in contact with the writer for the Sticky Comics, Dale Lazaroff. And Dale has been telling us some interesting stuff about what's been happening with Eros, but he seems to think that it might continue in one form or another. And he also mentioned that The original three issues of Sticky that he did with Steve McIsaac, the artist, might actually get published as a trade paperback one day, which would be really, really cool. So I will keep you all up to date on that if it ever happens. That would be a nice thing. So uh, I think that's it for the newsy part of the show. I'm going to take a really quick break and then come back and talk about one of my other favorite comics. I really love it when things that I like overlap. And I was made particularly aware of this um, several years ago, well, more than several, actually, when I found out that one of my most favorite authors of all time, Harlan Ellison, had his stories adapted into comic book form. So I'll give you a little bit of background on this and then tell you the really cool thing, which, will is the news at the end of it. So... Harlan Ellison, for those of you who don't know who he is, is an amazing author. He's primarily known as a science fiction author, although a lot of what he's written isn't really science fiction. It's not fantasy either. He sometimes calls it speculative fiction. It's been called lots of other things, but his writing is unique. No one else writes like him. Um, As David Gerald once said, if Harlan Ellison didn't exist, it would be necessary to invent him. He's written a lot of really wonderful nonfiction, too, because he's really interested in media. So he has a whole book of movie essays called Harlan Ellison's Watching, which is great. And he is also a great big comic book fan and has been for his entire life. So he's written comic books not a surprise, but he also at some point started collaborating with artists to get his own stories adapted into comic book format. This was in the mid-1990s, and it was pu- these um, comics were published by Dark Horse, who often goes in for this offbeat sort of thing. So the books were called Harlan Ellison's Dream Corridor. They published five of them. Um, they were collected into various different kinds of formats. This is kind of what happens with Harlan? His his work comes out in so many different formats. You have sort of have to pick and choose which ones you want to buy, or else you end up having um, lots of different forms of the same thing. As somebody who buys a lot of his books, I probably have the same stories in six or seven different collections. And being somebody who likes to collect books, you know, I have the hardcover. I have the hardcover with different covers. I have the reissues. I have the trade paperbacks. I have the English versions. I have the versions that I bought in. Uh, used bookstores because I found some weird copy that I didn't have before. And the Dream Corridor stuff is is like that in a way. Um, Some of the stories that are in Dream Corridor were stories he had written a long time ago, which were adapted, and some were things that he had written new just for the comic book. In any case, they're all really, really wonderful. And because Harlan is who he is and knows everybody in the universe, basically. Like, I don't think there's anybody he doesn't know. He doesn't like all the people that he knows, but he knows everybody. He got really incredible artists to do the art for this, and they were happy to do it. It wasn't like he had to draft them. They jumped at the chance to illustrate these stories, so... In um, the copy that I'm holding right now, this is volume two, number one, and they called it a quarterly, although I'll tell you why it really wasn't a quarterly. Um, there's a story in here illustrated by Neil Adams. There's another one done by Rags Morales. There's one done by Martin Nodell, who was a uh, Golden Age artist. There was another one by Brett Blevins and uh, Paul Chadwick. In another copy that I'm holding, this was the Dream Card or Special Edition, Um Let's see, who's this illustrated by? Michael Gilbert. Oh, who's the artist on this one? They, It's a little bit hard to find the artists on some of these stories because of the way they're constructed. So it's not like a regular comic book where there's just one story that goes all the way through. Each issue has like five or six different stories in them. And then there are little inserts between the stories where it's it's harlan telling you about the story how he came to write it what the background is and they're they're wonderful little illustrated pieces done by eric schanauer Um, and he plays around with different art forms and um, different really funny parodies of superhero stuff Um, so you really have to go through the whole thing, read the stories, read the bits in between to get the full effect of it. And because they're published by Dark Horse, they're really high quality, beautiful, beautiful color, incredible reproduction, everything looks great, the inking is great, the coloring is wonderful. Um, There are lots of different styles throughout each of these, so it's not like you get bored looking at the same thing. And they include uh, also a lot of text, so sometimes there's an interview, sometimes there's a story, That didn't get turned into a comic book But just has an illustration for it And then um, there's often just an essay by Harlan Talking about what's in the book So you can still buy these through Dark Horse I'm looking at the Dark Horse website right now And you can get all five original issues of Dream Card Plus the quarterly and um, the special And then there's a trade paperback Which collects just about everything in the first five And I think maybe one of the stories out of the special so this thing was published in 1996, right? That was the last time one came out, the first issue of the quarterly, 1996. Was there another one? No. But because I'm such a big Harlan freak, I also subscribe to his newsletter. And lo and behold, in the newest newsletter, there's a note from his editor at Dark Horse who says, there's going to be another dream corridor. I'm so excited about this. They've been working on this for a long time. It's going to be a trade paperback rather than an actual comic book that has, you know, 30 pages or so. And uh, the editor says, containing work by Richard Corbin, Paul Chadwick, Neil Adams, Gene Colan, Gene Ha, uh, Mark Wade, Gerald Jones, among others. And they're all stories by Harlan. There's a couple pages in here that are reproduced so you can see it. And I'm very, very excited about this. It's coming out in December and i it doesn't give a price on this but the other trade for dream carter was like 1895 so i'm assuming it's going to be the same thing but this is going to be really special when it comes out so if you're interested in Really, different types of stories, I would highly recommend any of these, and you don 't have to buy the trade for eighteen bucks. You can just buy one of the regular issues which cost two hundred and ninety five which is a bargain. You will definitely not regret it and If you like the stories I, I would say you know buy one, and if you like it, just go and, and buy the trade. Um, Harlan, and if you like the stories that are in here, go and buy some of his books. They're wonderful. Or, you know, check them out from the library. Any library worth its salt has a whole bunch of Harlan stuff in there. Um, He's written a number of really good essays about comic books, and uh, one of them is called um, Did Your Mother Throw Yours Out Too? And I I will try to find it. Um, Harlan is very protective of his rights as an artist, so you will not find pretty much anything that he's ever done online for free he just recently won a really large lawsuit against um a media conglomerate that shall go unnamed um trying to protect his rights for some of his work which had been reproduced online without his permission so it's not like you can just kind of scour the internet and find his stories you actually have to go out and buy it or check it out from the library But uh, I really love Harlan and I love Dream Corridor and I think if you enjoy the kinds of things that I do, you will like it too. So I'm going to take a little break and then we'll come back to talk about um, another overlap, the Star Trek comics continuum. And I like to think of this as going from the sublime to the ridiculous. week on the podcast, I have a special guest, who is uh, Jungle Kitty, my cohort in the uh, Look at His Butt podcast. Hi! (laughs) And the reason I have her on is because it's come to my attention that there are places where my two interests cross over, comics and Star Trek. So, uh, JK had pointed out to me a couple weeks ago that they have been releasing in trade paperback form the original Star Trek comic books that came out in the late 60s and into the 70s. And I've got some of them, but I wanted to buy this collection so that I could read them over and see what they were about because I really had very little memory of these things. So let me give you some history on this first. And I didn't know a lot of this till, of course, I had to look it up on the Internet where you can find everything. So the comics were originally published by Gold Key Comics And Gold Key was a company that was one of the first comic book companies to do a lot of licensing deals with companies like Disney and Hanna-Barbera. So throughout the 60s and into the 70s, they ended up doing comic books for a lot of TV shows and movies as well, just based on those things. And they were pretty much cheap, horrible comics for the most part. They were printed on really crappy paper, and the covers were really thin, and the colors were not so good. But just to give you an idea of the range of things that they did... um, these were actual comic books that were put out, like I said, from the 60s into the 70s. So there was The Adams Family, um, Bambi, Barney Google, Beetle Bailey, um, let's see, Buck Rogers, Bugs Bunny. I have a couple of the Bugs Bunny ones. Bullwinkle, Chip and Dale, Cinderella, Daffy Duck, Dastardly and Muttley. You remember Dastardly yes. and Muttley and their flying machines? Um, Dewey, Huey, and Louie. Let's see, um, donald duck's nephews that was a separate comic that they had dopey dumbo they even had a fat albert one they had <laughs> fractured fairy tales there was a oh. comic book of fractured fairy tales the flintstones george of the jungle um a whole bunch of stuff from Hanna barbera even heckle and jekyll <laughs> um let's see oh the impossibles huckleberry hound johnny quest uh, little lulu a whole bunch of Looney Tunes stuff. They had a Lost in Space one. They had Magilla Gorilla. They actually had a few original characters, um, one of them being Magnus Robot Fighter, which I was a big fan of when I was <laughs> younger because it was a totally wacky thing. And Magnus lived on this planet where um, everybody dressed in these sort of Greco Roman outfits and he was the Robot Fighter. 4000 AD. Okay. So it was. they had robots back they in the They had good robots. Well, they dressed like it, but it was really far in the future. <laughs> okay, Get it? four thousand A.D., not B.C. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, let me go on the list here: Mickey Mouse, uh, Mickey Mouse and Mighty Mouse. Let's see, um, The Perils of Penelope Pitstop. They actually I had a comic book cartoon. for that. I know the Pink Panther, Porky Pig, Ricochet Rabbit, Rocky and Bullwinkle. We said Bullwinkle before. Scooby Doo, Scrooge McDuck, Snow White, all of the Disney stuff. Speed Buggy. Um, Tom and Jerry, Top Cat. I love Top Top Cat. Cat. Uh, Uncle Remus, Underdog. They had an Underdog one. And then there were others that were kind of like overviews. So there was one that was um, like a a Walt Disney sampler and then there's a Looney Tunes sampler where they had different stories featuring the characters. There was even a yellow submarine one, it says here. I was going to ask if they did a Beatles one. I think they did. So I need to investigate that a little bit further because I would like to get my hands on a yellow submarine one if they have it. And then there were a couple others. I found a couple of different lists online, and I knew that they had done more for um, actual TV shows, not the animated shows. So Star Trek was definitely one of them. There was a Bonanza one. Can you believe it? (laughs) A Bonanza comic book. Um, There was also Adventures of Robin Hood. There was a Banana Splits comic book and The Rifleman. And there was also Boris Karloff, Tales of Mystery. I think we had those.
1: Really? Yeah, that sounds familiar.
0: Totally wacky. So whose idea was it to put out these comic books? Somebody who who knew they could make money off it. They sold Look at how many people. I know. So that was interesting to me that this was one of the first attempts at marketing in that way. And I know that um, in the history of movies, there had been attempts to take movie personalities and make comic books out of them. Um, not comic books the way we think about them, but more like serials or strips that appeared in the paper and then they were collected into books that you could buy. But I think that this was the first time that licensing on this scale had been done where a lot of different comic books were being put out aimed at children based on things that they were watching on TV and not the other way around. So not a comic book that was then made into a TV show, but a comic book made from a TV show. So, and, and now, of course, we see how that happens, and whenever there is something that needs to be marketed, you know, it's in a movie, and it's in a comic book, and it's on TV, and it's on drink cups, and it's on, <laughs> yep. you know, cheeseritos that you buy at Taco Bell. It's mm-hmm. everywhere. It has to be, like, you can't get away from it. It has to be marketed. So, that's the history. This all leads us to the key collection. Um, so, I wanted to ask you, having looked through this book very briefly, what you thought about these comics before I say what I think. <laughs> Well, I was I was commenting on, um,
1: these to me, and, and I'm not a real comics geek, but I, I read comics as a kid, are the real action comics, mm-hmm. that it, it's all full of whoosh and explosion and boom and everything, and those, as far as comic books go, I think I was what you would call a shipper, <laughs> and so, you know, the, these are not my comics, and... It, to me, the the artistry is so erratic because there are ones where you're going, okay, yeah, I can look at this group of people and pick out Kirk and Spock, and there are others where you're going, who is this supposed to be? So, um, yeah, just you know, a brief overview. They're they're really not to my taste, and uh, like I was saying, the the color in some cases is shocking because there's Rand with. Half red, half blonde. Well, that's because
0: she's wearing a snood on her head. See, it's to protect her basket hair. You're kidding? No, I'm serious. Like the the waitresses wear the the little like a little cap. Yeah, that's what it is. Okay,
1: the last person I saw wearing that kind of snood was my grandmother. You know, and it was white, so it matched her hair. So you didn't really see it until you got up close.
0: I saw Prince wear one on TV. (laughs) I did. Well, okay, then it's cool. It was Prince did it. Um, So my opinion about this is that these are some of the worst comics I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) They (laughs) suck. They're so bad. Um, The credits on the back say that the art here was by uh, Nevio Zaccara, issues one and two, and Alberto Giolitti. So what I'm thinking was that they hired these poor Italian guys who didn't speak any English, and they basically gave them some photographs of the, the cast and said, here, go draw these stories. So, um, what was the native tongue of the people who did
1: the writing? Because I never heard um, Scotty, you know, his um, the exclamations in here, booming barnacles and
0: yeah,
1: and, uh, crazy comets and you know, practically, you know, holy starship, Batman.
0: I mean, it's on that level. It's very, very strange. So, I read most of these through the other day on my way back and forth to work, and um, I'm, I'm astonished by how little these have to do with Star Trek. So the guys who drew them were given photographs of some of the cast. Now, not all of the cast, because the only ones he draws with any accuracy, the, the two artists draw, um, well, they draw Spock very well. Mm-hmm. They must have had more pictures of him. Right. The ones of Kirk don't really look like William Shatner. The ones that McCoy are in more or less look like him. There's one drawing of Uhura that you saw where she yes. looks like um, uh, Shirelle a shangri Or a Shangri-La. There's one of George Takei, which is yes. clearly taken from a very specific photo of George Takei, mm-hmm. um, which is right here, I think. Like, yeah. Like, this is yeah. it. And it's to the point where you can look at some of the panels and go, oh, I know what picture they took that from. And I did that with one of the pictures of Shatner. I was like, oh, I know exactly which picture that is. And uh-huh. It's the one where he's holding the rifle. Yes. In front of Yes, him. yes. So they drew it. And they obviously had some pictures of the exterior of the Enterprise, but no pictures of the interior. So the artist had to make this up by hand, and the Enterprise, on the inside, looks like a submarine. Well, and that's what I was saying when I first
1: flipped to it. I I, I said, um, this is so low-tech because they are saying that the needles on our, our yeah. measuring instruments are, are going crazy. I was going, needles? And then in the very next thing, the guy says... It's the infrared periscope, yes.
0: and I'm going what? So they have things like that. The transportation takes place in this uh, big plastic bubble. I'm showing you here <laughs> like in this Glinda? panel. It is kind of like that. So they have to step into this chamber where they they teleport the teleportation chamber. It's not even a transporter. <laughs> Do you remember when we had the discussion about?
1: Failed ideas for the doors, and one was a membrane, but (laughs) crew members kept getting stuck in the membrane. Sorry, that was completely off topic. No, no,
0: well, it's kind of like that. So these books are like everybody's bad ideas about what science fiction should be like. Oh, dear. And it's so anachronistic. Um, There's a part where Kirk says that they're going to go have a bumpy ride, and he actually says, fasten your (laughs) seatbelts. So Kirk's
1: doing he's been Marco Channing. He's
0: been watching All About Eve. Good for him. Uh, there are places where Spock's doing like a reading, and there's paper coming out of the, the, the control panel there. Um, they There's a whole bunch of things in the different stories where they're seeing the aliens, and they say, oh, well, at least we can understand them. They're speaking space Esperanto. Oh,
1: my God. Isn't that
0: funny? Space Esperanto. Not Esperanto. Esperanta.
1: Wow. It's a and, better and one. And the special space The dialect. special
0: space, so that's the space modifier again. Right. Space Esperanta, space this, space that. Do they have a time hook? <laughs> you know, I don't think they have a time hook, but they have a lot of you other You mean they weapons. managed to put out, what are their six comics in this book and none of them has time travel? <laughs>
1: I'm shocked.
0: Well, not in this volume. Now, there are other volumes because they did have, I think, 60 of these comics altogether, which is a really long run. Now, it took a long time. Which is almost more episodes than there were. (laughs) This first one, these came out in, um, I think the first one was 67, and then uh, they were published through the mid-70s before the movies came out. Mm -hmm. So they did like you know, a couple of them a year, but they kept grinding them out, so somebody was buying them, which is sort of astonishing to me. But um all sorts of things happen, you know, the Enterprise has like flames coming out of the nacelles, <laughs> like they're rockets. They actually fly around in the atmosphere oh. of a of a couple of the the planets. Um they didn't have any pictures of Scotty, so he ends up being a sort of a blondish guy. Right. I here, noticed that. Which is a little weird. Um the plots are your standard kind of nonsensical comic booky uh this is what we think science fiction is about, where nothing really makes sense and things don't get resolved. Oh, but there is. But it does have Spock beating his head against the wall, which I which thought was pretty is funny. Kind of good. Um, <laughs> and then in the very first one, so they go to this planet where the plants are cannibals. Yes. And uh, they have to rescue Janice. Of course, she's in trouble. Of course. And uh, so even even despite wearing the snood. always, you know. So they rescue her. And uh oh Kirk calls her honey or something. I just oh, really? I wanted to see that. Yeah. Is that as far as it goes as action you know, oh, yeah, my idea see, of action. See, they're they're running around and, and she says, oh, I'm exhausted and Kirk says, Steady, honey. I know it's been rough. He oh. <gasps> Um so they have this planet of the cannibal plants and it's being caused by alien spores and they think they're really evil. So um you know how they solve the problem? This is a good example of how this was not like Star Trek. Okay. In the series. So they um they beam they, off they leave Janice there for the plants and that's okay. That, <laughs> that would have been a good solution. So they leave the planet. I'll read it to you. Oh, the planet's called Planet KG. Okay. It stands for Kelly Green. Who's Kelly Green? No, the color, Kelly Green. Oh, okay. <laughs> Are we doing this too late at night? Yes! Okay. Captain's log, star date, whatever it is. We are orbiting the planet Kelly Green, performing <laughs> what will be our last duty here total destruction. A mission that must be fulfilled before we can continue our tour of research throughout the vast reaches of our the universe. Our universal mission? So they basically raise the planet, blow up everything on it, and, you know, like leave. salt the Earth. And then they leave. <laughs> Prime Directive much? I mean, (laughs) they just blow it all up. It's crazy. So that happens, and other really non-star tricky things happen. I could go on and on. I mean, you could go through actually each one of these and pretty much um, do an MST3K sort of thing (laughs) for each and every one. But I did want to point out one other kind of wacky thing that happens for no apparent reason. I can't quite figure this out. There's an episode, there's an issue where they land on some planet, okay, this this issue is called The Youth Trap. Okay, I read a little bit of that one. So they go to a planet, and there's some guy who has a, a laser beam that makes you young again, and so his plan, his evil plan to take over the world, of course is to um, shoot the members of the Enterprise with this and turn them into babies, and then he's going to take over the ship and then use it to take over everything. Because you really only need one guy to run that whole ship. You know, yeah. And, and
1: plus take care of all the babies. Well,
0: he has some He has some minions who are supposed to help him with this. Um, but the wacky thing is...
1: <laughs> I, hope the, I hope the minions are nannies and
0: nursemaids and... Okay, so I just I need to find this because it's the strangest thing. So these things go on and they're messing around on the planet, and you know they're being held hostage and blahdy 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 blah. blah. So it cuts from some panels where Kirk's down on the ship, and the bad guy, his name is Kuba, K-O-B-A. Kuba is threatening him, and uh, Kuba says, "I'm gonna show you what this can do." So he's gonna fire it up at the ship. that makes everybody young so now we're back on the ship and there are some members that have already been turned into children and the rest of the crew is looking at them and all of a sudden there's this red-haired woman here who hasn't been in the story before and her her line line please is oh dear this is a nightmare what shall we do scotty and he makes some answer to her and she's like being all modelish here. Yes. And she's being all modelish in the next couple of panels. You know who she looks like? Well, her name is Susan. Does that make any sense? Okay, Susan looks an
1: awful lot like many of the girls looked in the romance comics, which you know I oh, read as a kid. yeah.
0: They, they look like that a lot. She kind of looks like Jane Asher, actually. Yeah, yeah. She looks like Jane Asher. So she's here in a couple of panels. She doesn't really have any more lines, except when they fire the, the youth ray at the ship, she says, those faint lines under my eyes, they've disappeared. Wow. And Scotty gets some of his blonde hair back. And then she's not in the story again until this last panel here on the second uh-huh. to the last page where she's she says, very dreamy. I'm back to normal. I can just feel it. Who the hell is this woman, and why is she in this story? Um, The artist or writer's girlfriend said, Quit you think, bugging me, honey, I'll put you in a comment. I think that must have been it. Susan. It's totally weird. And in fact, she's drawn very differently from the rest of the characters in here. Mm-hmm. To me, she looked like... um, When I used to get uh, like Tiger Beat magazine uh-huh. and some of the other ones, there was always a cartoon in there that was about like the issues that girls were having and how to date boys and stuff like that. And they were drawn in a very specific style where the girls looked very tall and slim and they had this kind of long 60s hair, like the Jane Asher kind of hair, and they looked exactly like that. So it was like she got kind of transported from the Tiger Beat universe into the Star Trek universe. (laughs) Daisy,
1: that would be interesting.
0: (laughs) It's wacky. It's very strange. Well, she's Susan the space model. She's got big hoop earrings, too. Yeah. Gold ones. And she's got pouty lips. And no nose. No. Pretty just much. nostrils. Just nostrils. No nose. And lots of red lipstick. She's wacky. And, and Scotty looks nothing like
1: Scotty. Scotty looks like the red shirt who should die in the first,
0: yeah.
1: um, you know, five minutes
0: very very weird so um I'm I don't think I'm gonna buy any more of these books well here's the other thing I unless you want to about, buy them
1: for me no <laughs> you don't sound that enthusiastic about them when I buy you junk it's good junk okay um I want to talk about this too because I am in the book business and on the inside the interior front and back covers they have reproduced the the swoosh the gold Starfleet swoosh and you know there's no words it really kind of adds nothing content-wise although mm-hmm. it's very nice. But what surprises me is I know how much it costs to put something inside there, which is why almost all interior front and back covers are white to save a little money. So I'm just really stunned that to to bring together these Crappy comics. Um, They put, you know, really a a fairly nice cover on the thing. There are some really nice photos. It's true. So I
0: I was going to to mention that it's actually a very nice book. And you know what the thing
1: is, though? These covers are misleading because it's all photographs from the show. There are no reproductions of the
0: comics. Well, you know, that's actually very consistent with the comics themselves because um, the covers are reproduced in here, and Mm -hmm. never did the covers actually have pictures From the comic books, they were always pictures of the cast. And it's funny that so many of them are early publicity shots. Yeah. There's actually a really nice picture of Spock from Amok Time in here. Let's see if I can find it. Um, I thought it was a a really great photograph. Excuse me, photograph. It's clearly a photograph and not a still Mm -hmm. because the quality is so high. Hold on. I'm wasting the audience's time by flipping through the book. Look at that picture. Is that not gorgeous? Really? So it's, it's Spock um, down on Vulcan in amok time, and he's getting ready to wrestle with Kirk. And it's a nice action shot of him, but the color and the resolution is amazing. It's it beautiful. really is. Look at the texture. in the yeah. I, I love this, the,
1: the mm. heading. Think fast, Mr. Spock. A freak impulsion
0: um, a good a word. Word, is creating galactic disaster. So that could have been like on any... Mm-hmm. of the comic books. It's not really relevant to the story that's right. inside there. A freak impulsion. I like impulsion. That's a good word. Yeah. I'll have to figure out how to use that. More Maybe often. that can be the name of our starship. Ooh, the impulsion. <laughs> that's pretty good. It's like an impulsive implosion. I don't know. So these books are published by Checker. It's the I... act of being impulsive. Okay. <laughs> I think they're up to uh, volume four or five or something. I saw this came out in two thousand and four. I think. Oh. The cover price for this was twenty two ninety five. I did not pay nearly that much. I bought it used on Amazon because I'm cheap. Good. Very cheap. And it's got the remainder mark up at the top, but I don't really care about that. Uh, but it is a very nice book. It's printed on really nice stock. The The uh, pages are nice and glossy, and the color reproduction, such as it is, is mm-hmm. very good. Mm-hmm. And it does have these nice pictures of the cast, and there's a little introduction by uh, Mark Thompson, who's the publisher of the Checker Book Publishing Group. And i got to think that... Uh, they were able to buy the rights to these comic books for about, oh, well, I don't know, 25, 30 cents?
1: Yeah. Something like that? Yeah.
0: So they could afford to do something expensive, like put the Starfleet emblem inside the front well, cover? Well, I think,
1: you know, they are aware of that Trekkies will buy these things, and I don't mean that disparagingly because I've bought an awful lot of Trek stuff. <laughs> and so they want it to look like a collectible.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. Make it a
1: collectible.
0: I think so. So that's the piece on the Star Trek comics. Have you anything to add to that? Do I have anything to add to that? No, but you know, if you ever talk
1: about the classic comics, classic illustrated, have me back. Oh, sure. I'd (laughs)
0: love to have you back on the show because it's such a big effort, you know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for being the special guest. Well, thank you for having me.